0: Hello, and welcome to the TechDirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick.
1: The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wool on us. facing and taking on all the plates we paid to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Sucsonize them do their lies and make them bold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech.
0: Uh, back in January, we had Nabiya Sayed on the podcast uh, talking about a Yale Law Journal piece that she had written pointing out that our traditional conceptions of free speech didn't seem to fit correctly with the way that the internet was functioning. This was not, as some people incorrectly assumed an attack on free speech in any way. Uh, Rather, she was just pointing out that the models that we typically use to describe how free speech worked and why it was important weren't doing a very good job of explaining what was happening today with the various free speech fights on the internet. I've been thinking about that. Uh, article and also our conversation on this podcast a lot uh, over the past year so when mike godwin put together a three-part series for us touching on a similar idea we were very happy to run it Uh, hopefully uh, if you follow tector you've now read it Uh, if not you can still listen to this conversation and then go back and read it but if you have uh, i think this conversation will be uh, a good one to hear um So in it, uh, Mike argues that our traditional or what he calls bipolar conception of free speech isn't working all that well uh, as well. And what he describes as bipolar is the idea that most often we think about free speech in relation to two separate parties in conflict over speech. And often that's the government and the speaker. However, with the rise of the Internet, there's now a key third party involved, which are the various intermediaries who host all of our speech. And that should lead us to rethink some of how we approach free speech questions. Uh, We've had Mike on the podcast before, but... Not really. <laughs> Last year, he and I did a panel together at a conference where we discussed his creation of Godwin's Law and my creation of the Streisand effect, and then we later ran that discussion as a podcast. Uh, however, uh, now we're having him on the podcast properly uh, to discuss his new series, Protector. So, Mike, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, it's great to it's great to really be here. And, uh, <laughs> Thanks for having me.
0: Sure. So I I give a really quick description of your series, but do you want to maybe go a little deeper into what you mean by our bipolar speech disorder?
1: Sure. And and let me just uh, begin by talking a little bit about the process by which I came to uh, write this series. It's basically this... uh, like a lot of people who've been watching uh, uh, discussions of social media and public policy over the last two or three years, uh, I've noticed uh, uh, that almost all the discussions seem to be imbalanced one way or the other. so, for example, uh, you know, I have a long history as a civil liberties lawyer. Uh, what I sometimes see is you know some civil liberties people or some people who are political activists. Want the social media companies or the search engines, or both, to censor more content. Mm -hmm. Some of them want to censor less. But the idea that maybe they're being that the platforms are responding to government pressures somehow doesn't quite emerge to me. You know, it's not. It's like a party left out.
0: (laughs) Uh, And and,
1: you know, and, and and then right about the time I was first beginning to think about this, I noticed. This was about a year ago, too, a little over a year ago. I noticed that uh, uh, my colleague Jack Balkin, a law professor at uh, Yale, who who and I, I'm a, I'm a, a former fellow at the uh, at, at the Yale uh, Information Society Project, so I mm-hmm. got to know Jack pretty well, uh, you know, about a decade, a little over a decade ago. But what I noticed was he, his article actually had this wonderful. A scheme, this wonderful drawing that actually, and the article explains the drawing pretty well, uh, probably better than I do, but that explains that this this landscape of internet free speech is really more complex than our debates are reflecting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so one of the things I thought about was the fact that, uh, you know, and, 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 and you've written about this, and I've also written about this, uh, is that whenever... Uh, the platforms respond to pressure to remove certain kinds of content. That the very next thing that happens is that is the claim that the removals are unfair right. or or inconsistent. And then the very next thing that happens after that is demands for more <laughs> intervention from the platforms. Right. And so, but. You know, it's like I know that this is bad for. I know that when I drink this much, I have a big headache. So I'm going to drink some more to make my headache go away. (laughs) It's just not the right. It's not the right approach. Uh, And in fact, we have to sort of step back and squint a little bit and see the broad outlines of the problem. And so that was one thing that interested me a lot uh, in in Jack's uh, taxonomy. And the other thing that he didn't really expressly say but that occurred to me independently is that uh, we could talk about what we would want to ask for from the platforms, what kind of rules we want them to follow. But at the same time, I was thinking about the fact that Google you know, has governments asking them to provide information about users all the time. Uh, Apple, uh, not a not a not an intermediary in the normal sense, also runs into that, and we talked a lot, you know, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago about the uh, Apple iPhone cracking controversy. Uh, and I realized that if if these companies adopted a set of duties, kind of like the duties that I have as a lawyer, they would actually have legal standing to be champions of user rights. And I said, you know, that's like, that's the carrot that needs to go with the stick of uh, regulation. You know, if you want to adopt standards or if you want to self-regulate, which certainly could be done, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you also have this carrot, which is that you get, you know, it's just like when I show up and I say, I'm a lawyer, I'm representing this client, people know that they can't, like, wiretap me. You know, right. that that's pri- privileged conversations that I'm having with a client and so on. And, and that's an interesting power to have. And I wondered what it, the world would be like if the platforms uh, adopted or had adop- or had imposed on it, but I like the idea of them adopting it voluntarily, uh, this this framework of uh, of obligations and responsibilities on the one hand, and kind of uh, fiduciary superpowers, on the other hand, that enable them to go to court and say, look, we represent iPhone users. And that's why we are telling you we're not going to cooperate with uh, providing a backdoor into iPhones.
0: Right. So in that sense, uh, you know, I think the term, and it's been used in a few different contexts, but I think you used uh, information fiduciaries, right? Right.
1: That's right. So uh, I, I believe that Jack is the first person to come up with that, although okay. he has used it. And he's 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 written, and I urge people to read uh, every, uh, really, actually, you can read almost, Jack is very prolific. Uh, but if you read all of his internet governance, internet regulation, uh, law review articles, and there are many of them now, especially over the last uh, five to seven, to eight years, what you see is that he kind of spells out, he, he, he talks about, he, he comes at each of these issues a bunch of, from a bunch of different angles, and it really kind of gives you a more three-dimensional way of thinking about them. Uh, so information fiduciaries, I think, is his concept. If it isn't, then, uh, then he borrowed it, then it was a clever thing for him to borrow, and I feel <laughs> twice as clever for borrowing it from him uh, to write uh, these articles for Tector.
0: Okay. Um, And we have seen, I know that, like, um, I don't know if it actually got included, but um, uh, I know that, you know, there have been all these discussions about a federal privacy law, um, and I know that, like, the idea of an information fiduciary has been tossed about as something that might show up in those laws. Um, You know, you sort of expressed you weren't sure whether or not it needed to be in law versus... Uh, you know, voluntarily adopting it. I, I mean, I guess some of the the protection elements that that you envision um, is it is it even possible to do that voluntarily? Because you'd be, you know, expecting some sort of protections. Well, uh, you sure, know.
1: sure. The, the, that, that's a real. That's a great question. And the question, and I, I think what we, I think the answer is. We ought to find out how much of it can be done voluntarily <laughs> right. because if you wait around for Congress to do this, right. you know, number one, Congress may not turn out the scheme that you actually think <laughs> is the right scheme.
0: Uh, they're almost it, guaranteed not it, to do you know,
1: And there. that's assuming that you yeah. really have you know, some kind of consensus in both houses of Congress about what that looks like. Right. Uh, and, and I'm not sure that that happens in a hurry and, and it won't happen fast enough to address the kind of sets of issues that we are all talking about now with, uh, you know, regulating, uh, with responding to uh, complaints about Facebook and uh, sometimes about Twitter and other services. So so that's one thing. But the other thing, I mean, I, the way I thought about it was that that if the companies, including the platforms, but also just the tech companies generally, uh, move, you know, signed on kind of collectively to uh, a kind of a code of ethics, mm-hmm. they they could actually sort of uh, uh, bootstrap this process. I mean, if you get an industry consensus that you know. We're going to be fiduciaries, and we're not going to use your your private information against you, and we're not going to we're not going to sell sell it unless you approve it specifically. All sorts of different uh, things follow from that, and mm-hmm. what you do, I think, is you reawaken the possibility of confidence and happiness with the intermediaries if you are if you're more proactive and don't wait around for government or regulators to do this for you. And the, the parallels I've drawn are that obviously lawyers you know, start bar associations and they adopt professional ethics and some of these things get integrated into the legal systems of the states. And the same thing happens uh, with doctors, but even uh, the Society of Professional Journalists, and I, I have at various times been a member of the Society of Professional Journalists, has its own code of ethics. And it's not imposed on them by anyone. You can absolutely be an, an, an ethical journalist and, uh, right. and get away with it, in the, at least in the United States, um, if you don't follow the, the code of ethics. But, but what they found, what the, the, the profession of journalism found was that if you, if you just instill the idea that there are journalistic ethics and we do abide by them, then that gives you kind of an industry-wide uh, credibility and, and gravity when you're asserting, you know, things like freedom of the press or, you know, right to access to government documents and so on. So, so I think it's a win. Uh, uh, it's like it's one of those rare situations in which it doesn't have to be a trade-off. This could be an opportunity for uh, the, especially for United States-based companies who are dominant in a lot of these areas uh, to actually take control of the dialogue back from the European Union uh, and the uh, uh, General uh, Data Protection Regulation, uh, which, uh, as you know, the GDPR assumes that if you do- have somebody's private information, you're probably going to do something bad with it. Right. Uh, that's sort of the assumption. They said, no, no, that's not the assumption about lawyers, right? <laughs> if lawyers have your private information, they have it because they need it to help you. <laughs> And advise you uh, and you and you consent to that relationship so right. so we can sort of ch- ch- we can actually have a model that we could take back to the EU and say you know we, we know you want to protect privacy, but we, we you can do even more you can you can protect uh, free speech rights for citizens you can do a whole bunch of things we need to sort of change the topic to something more proactive and not based on the assumption that the companies are out to hurt users i, I don 't think they are
0: right well i mean so there are a bunch of different possible f- responses to this i mean one is just the the cynics response which is that you know the the cynics response to all this is that these companies you know anything that they come up with on their own is going to be you know so filled with loopholes and they actually do want to do all sorts of awful stuff with your your data and uh they're not going to trust a you know sort of agreement of this nature uh, in any way and they're not going to buy it and, and the people who you know, push for the GDPR and support the GDPR are going to be at the front of that line saying this is not good enough no matter what it is Yeah, they therefore... are going to be at the front
1: of the line <laughs> but then it becomes maybe a shorter line uh, you know, uh, the, I, I think that uh, what I wrote and I, did, I wrote this in a, in, a, in a Washington Post op-ed just on the information uh, fiduciaries uh, topic mm-hmm. Uh, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, I said, "Look, it, it, Facebook needs not to treat its critics as the enemy. It needs to treat the critics as presumptive friends even yeah. if even if that 's wrong by the way <laughs> even if even though some critics of Facebook will never be friends of facebook right. that 's absolutely true. What you do is if you begin with by treating everybody as honorable and seriously uh, concerned." Uh, and you tr- and you embrace and extend the criticisms. You own those criticisms so hard, you know, and so much that there's hardly any room for a critic, <laughs> yeah. you know, I left. Mean, yeah. you know, left to come back and say, "Oh, well, you overlooked this. You overlooked that." So you have to not think about it in terms of drafting a, a, a code of ethics that has lots of loopholes in it. You right. have to think in terms of being so progressive, you know, so inclusive. Uh, that the criticisms will be like, oh, well, this all sounds very good, but we don't think you're ever going to really do this. <laughs> you know, that's fine. That's a, right. that's a different kind of discussion to have.
0: Right, uh, right. Yeah, I, I mean, it was funny because I had written a very similar piece for Tech you know, basically saying that you know, it was mainly directed at Facebook, but I think it applies across the board to all the different Silicon Valley companies, the big ones, at least. That They have to stop treating these issues as political issues to be dealt with in a political way. But right. That they're actual, you know, real structural issues. And that includes, you know, actually, um, you know, taking seriously the criticisms, even I, when I, they disagree with them.
1: Yeah, I love that piece from you, by the way, because I had actually written my Washington Post op-ed. Before I read that piece, and I said, "Well, I'm I, my idea must be right because Mike independently, Mike independently has reached the similar recommendation. Yeah. Uh, so I must, my instincts must be correct. But I, I think that you know we, we've been focusing obviously in the last uh, few weeks. I mean, I wrote a piece on Slate that also includes the mm-hmm. information fiduciary uh, bit, and that's I guess now two or three weeks ago. But one of the things. You know, and I had written that piece before, you know, the emergence of this huge New York Times story Mm -hmm. about uh, Facebook's internal handling of the, you know, of the fake news issue and various criticisms. And so all I really had to do, and I had had been working with uh, uh, my editor at Slate, and I said, look, I have this now. Let me just change the lead (laughs) I, I just pegged it. I just said, okay. Now I'm just going to include something from the New York Times story in the lead. Uh, but basically, it was this. I had it written, and it was I, I could just punch it right out there and get it out in Slate uh, a couple of days after that story
0: broke. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, one other potential pushback on the on this idea is right, and, and this is something that I know you think about and that I think about a lot whenever any of these kind of proposals come out. But um, that I'm sure people would would have questions about is. You know, it's one thing to say that the Facebooks and Googles of the world should, you know, have this sort of information fiduciary kind of concept, you know, whether voluntarily or, or you know, thrust upon them. Right. Um, but, you know, what about the the startup? What about the next Google, the next sure. Facebook or, or or a company that doesn't wish to be that big? You know, I mean, one of the things that we've certainly seen with the GDPR is like as much of a, of a pain as it might be for – Facebook and Google, they can deal with it. Whereas a lot of smaller companies are having a lot more trouble. Uh,
1: So that's a really great question. And and you and I, and and once again, I think this is a case where we independently uh, sort of reached this conclusion, which was that, uh, the The European Union regulations, on the one hand, sort of assume that the companies are out of control and need to be brought into control right. and number two, they say, well, the reason America, American companies dominate this stuff is because you know a lot of these uh, a lot of these market sectors is that they 're unregulated it 's the Wild West over there in the right. United States. And, and once we put the rules in place, we'll have more competition from European companies to be the next uh, Google or the next Facebook or the next uh, something else, the next Twitter. Uh, and what they don't realize is that the, the GDPR imposes a set of burdens that it's easy for big companies, for incumbents to, well, it's not super easy, but it's, they can afford to comply. Right and startups can't. But the difference between that burden and the burden of a code of ethics is that y- you want to be able to say, I mean, the right the right framework, I think, is one in which you can say, you know, we wholeheartedly embrace this idea of information fiduciaries and a code of ethics with regard to our users, and we are going to try, and, and and these are our rules. This is how we're going to this is how we're going to follow them. And uh, I think that that scales a little better than just sort of trying to be be a direct competitor or a social network or a search engine and know that you're going to be dinged, you know, all of a sudden with a zillion, uh, you know, demands to take stuff down.
0: Right. So so let me take a little bit of a step back. I mean, we sort of went down this... this um hole where we're focusing on the the information fiduciary concept um right. but let me take a step further back and and just like the, this concept conceptualization of free speech um and and how it works with sort of the intermediaries as well as governments and, and individuals and you know it's tough to describe this by voice but you have you know you use that um uh, example triangle the, diagram the, the triangle diagram in, in two of the pieces that sort of shows the the, the three parts of the triangle and how they're, right. you know there are different factors impacting each other at the same time so so let's take a step back and say like and, and try and look at what what does this um what does this look like for free speech sure uh
1: so I think it's really important here to pick up on a concept that uh, Jack Balkin talks about, which is a new school Mm -hmm. speech regulation. So historically, speech regulation driven by government comes in the form of mostly laws, but sometimes court cases or regulation from agencies. And it sort of is a direct imposing of some rules uh, on speakers and the speakers could be you and me it could be we could be it could be a newspaper or a, a radio uh, broadcaster uh, and and so on so that's the kind of the old school speech regulation the new school speech regulation operates in a different way uh, the the policy look making law is hard and it's never been harder to make law in congress than it is in 2018. Uh, But what you can do if you're a member of Congress or if you're a a regulator is you can make noises about making laws (laughs) or or suggest, you know, if you don't fix this, we will. right? You know, and and then the, you know, platforms like Twitter, you know, which Twitter, uh, I think, uh, culturally didn't really want to censor anyone, Mm -hmm. Uh, even though they had terms of service that allow it and even though Section 230 allows it. Uh, They didn't want to censor anyone. And then they have to be responsive to this new school speech regulation, which is where government speaks to the platforms Mm -hmm. and says, look, you need to do something, Um, you know, or we will. And then the platforms say, okay, well, we've got to police more stuff. Uh, But then the way this uh, affects free speech for ordinary users is this, you know, people get blocked on Twitter Uh, And they're angry at Twitter,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) you know, and they're really not seeing that this is something. This is uh, the context of this is actually about government demands that Twitter be more interventionist. Uh, And and added to that is the fact that one of the things that we both believe is that when this when any of these interventions operate on these uh, platforms of such large scale, whether it's human interventions or algorithmic interventions or both together, uh, you get inconsistent results at scale. Uh, Some people will be censored who shouldn't be censored. Some people whose major offense was quoting somebody else who was (laughs) violating terms of service will get kicked off the platform. And that's just nonsense. But what it does is it makes, I mean, the first reaction a lot of people have is you got to get your act together, Twitter. You've got to get your act together, Facebook, and censor more stuff because you're censoring unevenly now. Right. Uh, and, and that's probably not the right answer.
0: Um, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, this isn't pushback, but this is an observation. I mean, you talked about sort of the pressure from the government, but they also have received tremendous pressure from, from users as well.
1: Oh, absolutely. To... Absolutely. That's the thing. And users are not powerless in this right. space. Uh, uh, although... You know, you know the typical model for uh, for for individual speakers is a voice. You know, it's it's typically called voice and exit. You can stay within the system and give voice, or then you can or you can leave. You know, right? Uh, and you maybe you're moving to another country or something. But you, it's hard to do that where you have platforms operating at the scale of Facebook, which has two billion people. That if you're not on Facebook, it's hard to reach. That same audience, uh, or, right. or to reproduce the kind of reach that you have on Facebook, um, and 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 there are a number of reasons for that, which have almost nothing to do with what we're talking about today. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, you know, in ter- you know, I think that what we thought 20 years ago uh, was that we would always have kind of a vigorous competition among platforms, uh, but that they shook out. You know, basically shook out in the last 10 years. And so now we have some dominant platforms. Uh, If history is any guide, they won't be dominant forever. Uh, You know, something new will happen and that'll shake up the the environment. They may not
0: even be dominant for very long.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know, you know, I I, I was just reading the news uh, uh, today and saw, you know, there are people who are like chortling over you know, the decline in Facebook stock price.
0: Right. Um,
1: and all I could think of is, uh, you know, stock prices, you know, stock price doesn't tell you anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the the revenue model for Facebook is still pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's exceptionally good. Yeah. Uh, and, and if the stock price sort of plummets, all that does is it tells me that people, you know, a lot of people who have money and enough, enough money to buy a lot of Facebook are probably going to buy it. Uh, because that money, that, that revenue stream from Facebook is pretty good and it hasn't really been shaken yet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's true. I mean, it's funny to me, you know, I remember this may be going a little off track, but I remember a decade ago having this conversation, um, where I thought incorrectly, clearly, (laughs) uh, that, um, that Facebook would never have a very good revenue model, um, and, you know, I'd argued Google obviously has a tremendous business model, but that was because they could put ads in the, the moment when you were searching for something. So they could put right. information when you were searching and that seemed right. like the, the perfect business model. And I thought Facebook's business model would never quite function properly because, um, you know, when you're using Facebook and looking for information or communicating with your friends, that's the, you're not searching for anything and you don't want. You know, so I always thought the advertising on Facebook would seem very intrusive. What I didn't expect, I think, was that they would suck in so much data and customize the, the ads to you so much that that they became much more effective, even if they were still intrusive.
1: I, yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, you know, I, I know that, uh, like, you know, I'm as you know, I got married last year. And one of the things, you know, I look for... I, I look for Christmas gifts for my mm-hmm. wife this year, and if, and Facebook is ready to help me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, totally ready to help yes, me every are. time
1: I show up on Facebook. They are ready to help me buy gifts, and <laughs> and some of those suggestions are pretty good suggestions. So yeah. I'm not I'm not hugely complaining about it. But of course, yeah. they know because I did some searching. Uh, you know, they know that that I'm in the market for gifts for my wife. Yeah.
0: I mean, I've sort of, I've sort of joked that, you know, like um, there's this concept in robotics of the uncanny valley, which you're probably familiar with, right? Sure. which is, you know, if, if the robot, you know, is, looks like a metallic robot, people aren't that freaked out about it. And it goes along this curve where at some point where it looks just enough like a human, um, but not quite all the way to the human, it's, it's, it creepy. creeps out, very, very creepy, and it sort of keeps you out. And I, I, sort of have that same view of advertising, where like you know, targeted, customized advertising, where if it was perfect and it actually could predict and tell you, you know, give you the exact ads for what you wanted to buy your wife for Christmas, that would be right. actually kind of useful.
1: It would, no, it would <laughs> be kind of useful. So, and I've actually written about this because uh, one of the thing, one of the criticisms, uh, as you know, I did a. And I don't know why I keep writing three-part series for you, but <laughs> I do. Uh, I think the original three-part series, which was everything that's wrong with social media, yeah, uh, I wrote thinking it was going to be a one piece, and then I realized <laughs> as I kept listing all the typical complaints about social media and and search, uh, I kept I I was running out of space. So I said, all right, I'll make it more, one more part, <laughs> then I'll make another part. Um, but. It, So the complaints about advertising are really interesting, and I've written about this. Um, We have had, certainly in the United States and I believe elsewhere in the developed world, this ambivalent relationship towards advertising Mm -hmm. uh, because advertising is clearly trying to sell us stuff. And some people, some cultures have a reflexive distrust of commerce. Mm -hmm. Uh, You see this much more commonly in the European Union than in the United States, but plenty of people in the United States just hate advertising. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I always, and I, as a guy who used to work for a newspaper and work for a magazine, I, I, I'm always upset by these people because I say, you know, <laughs> the, the advertising is how we were able to get the newspaper or the magazine into your hands, you know, at a price that you can afford. Uh, so, but, but those ads were not targeted. Right. Uh, they're not, they're not, I mean, they're broadly targeted. Like uh, I get, uh, I get lawyer focused magazines and they offer lawyer focused ads and that's not a huge surprise. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, if the choice is between advertising that we're not interested in and advertising that for various reasons we might be interested in, I think that's okay. I mean, I would rather have stuff that is more likely to be interesting to me. Yes, uh, uh, and I think the news. I think traditional media. Now that the traditional media have have you know grappled, not always successfully, but they've had to grapple with adjusting to the internet. Uh, they they're they're using the same. They're using DoubleClick. They're using the same uh, technologies to customize the service of ads on their platforms and through Facebook and 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 elsewhere. Uh, so so. You know, it's helpful for everyone if the ads that you serve to people are the ones that people might want to see. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. so, so I, you know, I mean, you could say no ads at all. And, and I, that's a perfectly respectable decision. But what you don't, you're not able to do if you do that is uh, assemble the kind of capital that it takes to have really powerful journalistic institutions like the New York Times or, or the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post.
0: Yeah, and and I think I think people don't necessarily understand how much they actually do appreciate uh, you know uh, advertising when it's done right, and and that's like right. there's there's a big difference between and I argue you know you could argue that the vast majority of advertising is not done right and not done well, but if it is actually alerting you to things that you are interested in in a timely way when you do want it, um, that, that could actually be be super valuable, but because it's so often done poorly and then you have all these other questions around the data and how people are using it. Um
1: well, and I think right. And I and I think on top of this is the fact that when people think about advertising on the internet platforms, they're thinking, you know, they re- they're certainly correct to recognize that those platforms have huge scope, bigger than any newspaper, bigger than any broadcaster. Uh, And also they're using algorithms and and a lot of data to customize what ads they serve to you. But, uh, you know, they they, these people don't don't seem to recognize that, you know, the traditional media entities are also doing this.
0: Right.
1: Uh, And. and they haven't really kind of thought through the consequences of the fact that advertising is all, you know, the advertisers always wanted to reach your demographic. They always, they, they always wanted to enable you to spend money on on things that you might want to buy. Um, and, and, and so they have anxiety because the platform is new and the platforms are super large.
0: Right. Right. Um, Anyways, we've gone a little bit away from, from from It's still interesting, obviously, and these conversations well, all all fit together. <laughs> well, I know these
1: conversations all fit together. This is the thing, as you know, uh, you know, and and you you more than anyone, but certainly me too. You know, we have been riding around kind of a full range of issues that arise from from these platforms, from search and from uh, you know internet privacy and from. Uh, and from social media and and so when we have a perfect storm like the one that facebook is experiencing you know that touches on a whole bunch of things a whole bunch of related uh sometimes more distantly related topics but there are a whole bunch of related topics that we've all been investing a whole bunch of our professional lives uh in understanding more deeply
0: yeah but um so i guess um to, to bring us back around a little bit, though, and and you know to sort of, uh, I guess, wrap up this discussion, like, so what, you know, h- how do you see this shaking out? Like, if people followed your suggestion on on how how to think about these things, what you know, what would the world look like? What would people be doing? What would platforms be doing?
1: So. Here's what I would do, and 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 I sort of suggest this. I hint at it in the series, but mm-hmm. I'll just make it more explicit here. I think the large platform companies who have a lot of money to spend and a lot of work in front of them to repair relationships with customers and repair, you know, their public image, need to invest in uh, in convenings and conferences more than one in which all the stakeholders including people like you and me and including ordinary people and organizations and governments uh, show up you need a kind of a multi-stakeholder model for for addressing the issue of what information fiduciary uh responsibilities and rights Mm -hmm. ought to be and what that framework is and i think they ought to get on it and they ought to quit you know one thing that you see sometimes now is uh you know tim cook will snipe at zuckerberg right you know i said now stop all that that's actually you know really not helpful yeah <laughs> you know uh you know it, you know uh, sundar pichai and and uh um and zuckerberg and tim cook and all and and smaller players too all need to get together and start ironing out you know proactively putting together a framework that is hugely user protective and hugely designed to create maximum autonomy for users uh, and also gives these companies uh, standing as stakeholders to be tribunes of user interests like Mm -hmm. privacy and like free speech. So that when, you know, right now, as you know, I guess... uh, uh, I think uh, Pichai is going to be uh, in Congress tomorrow. Is that right?
0: Wednesday. 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 Yeah, this,
1: yep. he's con- so he's coming in and he's got to, you know, and, and obviously there are a lot of unhappy questions that are going to be asked him about, number one, what are you doing in China? Uh, and, you know, how are you, how are you enabling the repression of <laughs> dissonant voices in China right. with your censored search engine? You know, and he'll have, he'll, you know, no doubt be prepared to answer some of those questions. But what you really want to be able to do when Congress hails you in for a hearing is say, here, we've got an initiative and this is what it looks like. Right. And if we could get a sign in, if we could get everybody to buy in on, you know, what an ethical framework is, um, we could we could make people happier. We could also could, by the way, for American companies, it would keep, it would enable them to preserve a lot of their technological leadership if they create new models for honoring uh, the autonomy of users. Uh, so, so I think there needs to be the equivalent of an internet governance forum just for search engines and intermediaries uh, and and social media. Um, there needs to be a multi-stakeholder uh, convening and ideally more than one. Uh, so if I had, you know, if I were Zuckerberg or if I were uh, and, and Tim Cook, I would totally sponsor one of these things. right?
0: You know? let, let me interrupt, though, just real quick, because uh, I, I know living in this world, like, we know what multi-stakeholder means, but not everybody listening to this podcast does. And, and I know that I've had that particular term come up in the past where people are like, w- what does that even mean? So what, what do sure. you mean by multi-stakeholder? Sure. Uh,
1: so the way, I mean... And I'll give you the example, which I think sort of spells it out. Back when Brazil was a stable nation, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, you so know, not so long ago, Dilma Rousseff, you know, uh, was interested in uh, uh, sort of advancing the Marco Seville, a kind of a framework of user rights on the Internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she said, well, we'll have a, you know, we'll have an, inter- you know, we'll have a, um, I, not a it's not multi, we'll have a multinational, we'll have a multi, you know, right. multinational or international convening of all the governments and every and people, you know, who who like me who said, no, you don't want to recreate the ITU. Right. Uh, you know, the ITU is hugely undemocratic, and governments have sets of interests that are not the same as all the other players who have an interest in how the internet works, out, and you can't assume that governments even. Democratic governments are going to get all that right. So you need to, multi-stakeholderism is a model where it says governments are a set of stakeholders, uh, private enterprise companies are a set of stakeholders, ordinary users are a set of stakeholders, NGOs, civil society are a set of stakeholders uh, and you need to get everybody in the room to really thrash out what the issues are. Yeah. Uh, and I think if we did that, if you have a huge amount of uh, multi-stakeholder engagement, In developing this uh, information fiduciaries model and a a new framework for the platforms as tribunes of of user interests, I think we could come up with something great. And then we could present it as kind of a thing to Congress and to other lawmakers and say, this is what we want.
0: Yeah, no, I I think that makes sense. And I think the key part of the multi-stakeholder concept is that it's not just governments making those calls because – um, you know, government's interest is not always aligned or not always as knowledgeable about a lot of these things.
1: You, so. you know, a part of this was informed by my experience more than 20 years ago with uh, Reno versus ACLU, because for one brief shining moment in 1997, you had users, you had the companies, you had plenty of people in government kind of put together, uh, uh, you know, kind of began to forge a consensus about what a free and open, empowering Internet might look like, Um, I knew it wasn't going to last. I knew things like copyright were going to emerge and Mm -hmm. be, you know, difficult issues to tangle with. But for that moment, you know, everybody realized that we're better off with a free and open Internet. And I think we can get back to that in uh, in 2018 and 2019 and beyond uh, by uh, jumpstarting multi-stakeholderism on this issue of uh, ethics uh, ethical frameworks for the platform companies and social media
0: yep well that would be nice (laughs) hopefully someone listens I hope somebody (laughs) listens
1: that would be great
0: Uh, but anyways uh, thanks uh, for joining us to have this conversation thanks also for writing the three part series again uh, if you're listening to this and you haven't read it uh, we'll link to it uh, but you can do a search for it just uh, bipolar uh, Speech Disorder I'm sure it will show up Parts Yeah, you one, know, two you know orig-
1: originally I called it uh, Free Speech Bipolar Disorder And then I realized that uh, the search engines Would all link it with Bipolar Disorder Articles, so oh. I had to put free speech uh, In the middle yes. <laughs> to, to make sure that search Worked properly
0: on the series <laughs> It makes sense. Um, but uh, no it's an interesting and thought provoking and, and certainly a topic that a lot of people uh, are thinking about and a lot more people need to think about. So so I appreciate uh, that you wrote it and I appreciate you taking the time to come here and talk about it.
1: Great. Uh, thanks, Mike. Uh, I look forward to hearing it.
0: <laughs> Great. And uh, for everybody else, uh, thanks for listening. And uh, we'll be back next week. If we don't stand up to them someone will get wanna get her to
1: grab a shovel and take a